electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks so much. Our breaking news continues now. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. We are, as you know, just moments away now from the GameStop hearing on Capitol Hill as the leaders of Robinhood, Citadel, Reddit, one of its star traders, along with Melvin Capital, answer questions before the House Financial Services Committee. They're getting set, as you can see. Here's who you're going to see in today's virtual hearing. We'll show you the wall of the major participants there. There, of course, Vlad Tenev, who you just saw a moment ago. He's the CEO of Robinhood. Ken Griffin of Citadel, Gabe Plotkin, Melvin Capital. Steve Huffman is the Reddit CEO. And then Keith Gill uh, will be there as well. Roaring Kitty, uh, otherwise known as, of course. Our investment committee here with me, as always, to walk you up to the event today. Jim Labenthal, Steve Weiss, Jenny Harrington is the CEO uh, and portfolio manager at Gilman Hill Asset Management. And Courtney Gibson, of course, is with us today, the president of Loop Capital Markets. We do have our team of all-star reporters with me as well today. Bob Pisani is here, along with Kate Rooney, Julia Borston, and Leslie Picker. Leslie, I'm going to begin with you. We're going to learn a lot today about short selling. We're going to learn about short squeezes. And we're also going to learn how the powerful firm Citadel executes its trades, among other things. You're exactly right, Scott. And it's rare to hear from some of these voices that will be testifying today, namely Ken Griffin of Citadel uh, and Gabe Plotkin of Melvin Capital, both of whom have been caught up in this whole frenzy. Now, the issue surrounding short interest, the controversy, if you will, is this idea that GameStop and other names have been able to be shorted at over 100 percent of their float side, a lot size. A lot of people are wondering how and why that's possible. Another area of concern is this idea that short squeezes and short selling can contribute to some of this volatility that we've seen. You can probably expect some questioning on that front as well as around the transparency involved in disclosing certain short positions, whether there needs to be more transparency in order to properly assess the risk, both from the company side as well as from the market side. Now, interestingly, Keith Gill will point to this and say that they need to really start the discussion on this issue of short selling. But Gabe Plotkin, in his prepared remarks, plans to defend the practice of short selling, saying that absolutely none of Melvin's short positions are part of any effort to artificially depress or manipulate downward the price of a stock. Now, you also mentioned Citadel and Ken Griffin. Interestingly, in his prepared remarks, he makes just a passing mention of his role in running the $34 billion hedge fund Citadel, instead focusing on Citadel Securities, which is a separate company that he also runs, but had more of a direct relationship with Robinhood as it pays for their order flow. Uh, So he'll focus on Citadel Securities, their role as a market maker, and how that plays into the retail trading environment right now. 
Yeah, his seat, Leslie, may end up being uh, certainly one of the hottest today as that firm has faced mm -hmm. criticism about what, if any, role they played in what Robin Hood ended up doing with curbing some of the trading to which Mr. Griffin has said in an interview, he called that completely absurd, a completely absurd theory. Uh, so he's going to face a lot today uh, from these lawmakers in Washington. There were a lot of conspiracy theories floating around there, but it certainly raises the question about conflicts of interest that are embedded in this market structure that we see today. Now, with regard to Citadel and, Securities, and Leslie, the real question was the Forgive fact me for interrupting you, Leslie. I'm going to go to the yeah. hearing. Maxine Waters, the, the chair of the committee, has now begun. And other stocks. I want to know how each of the witnesses here today and the companies they represent contributed to the historic trading events in January. This recent market volatility has put a national spotlight on institutional practices by Wall Street firms and prompted discussion about the evolving role of technology and social media in our markets. These events have illuminated potential conflicts of interest and the predatory ways that certain funds operate and they have demonstrated the enormous potential power of social media in our markets. They have also raised issues involving gamification of trading, potential harm to retail investors, and the business models of apps with retail investors as their users. All of this is why we have witnesses from many of the key players here to testify today, including witnesses representing Wall Street firms, Melvin Capital and Citadel, social media company, Reddit, trading app Robinhood, as well as one of the retail investors involved. In subsequent hearings, we will hear from regulators and other experts regarding these events, including why Dodd-Frank rulemakings related to short selling disclosures were never implemented. Many Americans feel that the system is stacked against them and no matter what, Wall Street always wins. In this instance, many retail investors appeared motivated by a desire to beat Wall Street at its own game. And given the losses that many retail investors have sustained as a result of volatility in the system, there are many whose beliefs uh, that the system is rigged against them has been reinforced. Others have noted that there are winners and there are losers in every trade in our financial markets. Our role as a financial services committee is to ensure fairness in our financial markets and system robust protections for investors and accountability for Wall Street. Today, we will hear firsthand from the witnesses regarding these events. The hearing will be an opportunity for this committee to get the facts about the role each of the entities uh, the witnesses represent played in the events we are examining today. Now, I recognize the ranking member of the committee, the gentleman from North Carolina, Mr. McHenry, for five minutes. Well, uh, thank you, Madam Chair. And um, let me just begin by saying I believe Americans are far more sophisticated, informed, and capable than people in D.C. give them credit for. When I called for this hearing last month, I wanted this to be a fact-finding mission. We have speculation. We have headlines and finger-pointing, but we don't have the facts. We need facts, not just the salacious bits or nasty comments on Reddit. And look, there's plenty of that. We need the facts today. Now, some on the left are already floating new restrictions or 
things to, quote, protect these so-called uninformed retail investors who, in their eyes, don't know the difference between the Dogecoin and the Dow Jones without Congress telling them. I think if, we're, if we've learned anything from the past few weeks, it's that these average everyday investors are pretty darn sophisticated. There is wisdom to the crowd. So let's zoom out on that idea just for a moment. The GameStop story represents a larger truth. A fundamental change is happening. Like never before, everyday investors can communicate, access more information, and work collectively to move markets all in real time. Technology is fueling this revolution. Congress cannot put technology back in the box. GameStop is a culmination of years of pent-up frustration. That frustration is now paired with faster, cheaper, and better technology. Consider for a moment that for every story of someone being able to pay off their student debt uh, from the GameStop trade, or conversely, every story of somebody who lost money, there were stories of those who said they were investing in protest. In protest, they would gladly risk losing money just to prove a point. And now, uh, and while no one should ever risk investing money that they cannot afford to lose, let's tell the truth of why someone would do something like that. The sad truth is the K-shaped economy is nothing new in our capital markets because the structural core of our regulations literally enshrined inequity. Policies like the credit investor definition blatantly pick winners and losers. If you're wealthy, you're good to go. And if you're not, you're deemed too dumb to be trusted with your own money. So a privileged few get to invest alongside Ivy League endowments, getting early access in private markets to the greatest returns of the last two generations. But not so fast for the every, average everyday investor. In the eyes of our government, you need to be protected, protected from your own decisions, protected from your own money, protected from more opportunities. So you are left with a savings account, which pays no interest. And if you need more money than that, well, we created a world where it's easier to go buy a lottery ticket than it is to invest in the next Google. Is it any wonder why the unhealthy dynamics of GameStop happened? It's time we get serious about equity and ownership in the American economy. We should live in a world where the construction worker or Uber driver trading on Robinhood has the same access to equity shares in Robinhood itself as the white collar employees who work there. Same goes for Reddit and Reddit users, by the way. Both contributed to, to its success. Why can't both share in its future success? So I'll conclude with a reminder for some of my colleagues who want to regulate more and more. In the 1980s, Massachusetts state regulators barred citizens from investing in what the Wall Street Journal called the latest in a cascade of stocks of high technology companies that occurred that year. What IPO was too risky in the eyes of the government? Apple. So instead of shutting the American public out through new regulations, new forms of taxation or so-called protections, let's use this opportunity instead to side with them. So I'll begin where I started. Americans are far more sophisticated, informed, and capable than folks in D.C. give them credit for. And it's time our securities laws 
treat them that way. I look forward to the hearing and I yield back. Thank you so very much. Uh, I'm so pleased uh, that you are cooperating today and you were eager to join with us uh, when we uh, call for this committee. So I want to welcome today <laughs> distinguished witnesses to the committee. Mr. Balad Tenef is the Chief Executive Officer of Robinhood Markets Incorporated, a company with a trading app that after increased trading activity in GameStop and certain other stocks, restricted trading of those stocks for a period of time. Mr. Kenneth C. Griffin is the Chief Executive Officer of Citadel LLC, a fund which is one of Robinhood's main customers and sources of revenue which also provided financial support to Melvin Capital Management LP when Melvin faced significant losses over GameStop and other trades. Gabriel Cotton is the Chief Executive Officer of Melvin Capital Management LP, which held a significant short position in GameStop and other stocks and experienced significant losses due to its positions. Steve Huffman is the Chief Executive Officer co-founder of Reddit, a social media platform, which is home to the subreddit Wall Street Bets, where retail investors discuss trading and where a large number of members discuss the purchase of GameStop and other stocks which experience volatility. Mr. Keith Gill is a retail investor who posted on Reddit and YouTube regarding investing in GameStop and other stocks. Jennifer, Golf is a director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. Without objection, your written statements will be made part of the record. Each of you will have five minutes to summarize testimony. Chairman here. It was my, I believe that there are only three minutes of Democratic opening statements uh, with the idea that uh, the subcommittee chair on the Democratic side would be called as well. Uh, that's what I was told by your staff. Uh, well, thank you very much. Um, if uh, that is the order uh, that has been organized, I will cease my introductions and I will call on you, Mr. Sherman, uh, to please go ahead and uh, make an opening statement. Thank you. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. Thank you so much. Back in the day, the law school professor would create an exam where he'd weave together a story that would exemplify each of the issues in that area of the law. But never did the professor do it as good a job as the GameStop saga, which identifies most of the issues facing our capital markets. Short selling. Could there be limits or required additional disclosures? What do we do with market participants, whether they be on Reddit or in, on Wall Street, who are shorting a stock or buying a stock for the purpose of influencing its price. What is this payment for order flow model? And what does it mean when some participants get best execution and some get enhanced best execution? In price enhanced best execution. 
and are all traders being treated fairly and is payment for order flow free to the consumer we need to look at the plumbing where it takes two days to settle a transaction but also why is it the broker's capital rather than the customer's capital that is posted uh, during the two-day period and finally we need to look at the gamification and glorification of high-frequency uh, trading I thank uh, the chairwoman for uh, the time and I hope uh, that uh, in the months to come we have several hearings to explore these issues and that we're able to pass legislation this year to deal with each of them and I yield back thank you the chair now recognizes the chairman of the subcommittee of oversight and investigations the gentleman from Texas mr. green for one minute thank you very much madam chair I greatly appreciate the opportunity to express some concerns that I have. It is a fact that Citadel Securities has paid over $100 million in penalties. And my concern is this. It deals with whether we can allow a market maker's profits from misleading clients and improperly trading ahead of clients to become something as simple as the cost of doing business. The risk of punishments for violations must always exceed the rewards to deter the risk. I'm concerned and my hope is that we'll get some additional intelligence on how these punishments have impacted the rewards that have been received. I yield back. Thank you very much. And I will go back to the introduction of our witnesses. I left off with Jennifer Scott, uh, Director of Financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. Without objection, your written statements will be made part of the record. Each of you will have five minutes to summarize your testimony. You should be able to see a timer on your screen that will indicate how much time you have left. And a time will go off at the end of your time. I would ask you to be mindful of the timer and quickly wrap up your testimony if you hear the chime. Now, before we begin uh, with your oral testimonies, I would like to swear in the witnesses. I will call each of your names individually to respond. Would you please raise your hands? Do you solemnly swear to affirm that the testimony you will give for this committee in the matters now under consideration will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. Mr. Tanel? I do. Mr. Griffin? I do. Mr. Plotkin? Mr. Plotkin? I was muted, I apologize, I do. Thank you. Mr. Huffman? Do. Mr. Gill. I do. Ms. Gluck. I do. Thank you very much. Let the record show that all of the witnesses answered in the affirmative. We will now begin with their oral testimonies. Mr. Tanev, you are recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Chairwoman Waters, Ranking Member McHenry, members of the committee. My name is Vlad Tenev, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer and co-founder of Robinhood. Thank you for the invitation to speak about Robinhood and the millions of people we serve. Almost eight years ago, Beiju Bot and I founded Robinhood. We believed then, as we do now, 
that the financial system should be built to work for everyone, not just a select few. We dreamed of making investing more accessible, especially for people without a lot of money. The stock market is a powerful wealth creator, but half of U.S. Mr. households Seth, participate in Mr. it. Seth, uh, I would like you to use your limited time to talk directly to what happened January 28th and your involvement in it. Certainly. Madam Chair, Madam Chair, the witness has the opportunity to, to, to give their own testimony. Excuse me, you, you are not time for your questioning. You are not recognized, uh, Mr. Uh, please go right in here and speak directly to the question. McHenry. Mr. McHenry, yes, of course. <laughs> we created Robinhood to economically empower all Americans by opening financial markets to them. I was born in Bulgaria, a country with a financial system that was on the verge of collapse. At the age of five, I immigrated with my family to America in search of a better life. I have benefited from all America has to offer. And Robinhood's mission to democratize finance for all has a very special significance for me. Robinhood's platform allows people from all backgrounds to invest with no account minimums and zero commissions. Contrary to some very misleading and highly uninformed reports, we see evidence that most of our customers are investing for the long term with features like fractional shares, dividend reinvestment, recurring investments. Our customers can start with small amounts and grow their investments in blue chip stocks and ETFs over time. We've always recognized the responsibility that comes with helping people invest. We'll continue to enhance our educational platform to help customers no matter where they are in their financial journey. Hundreds of free educational resources are, are available to everyone on our Learn website right now. While markets fluctuate, this tells me our business model is working for everyday Americans. The total value of our customers' assets on Robinhood exceeds the net amount of money they have deposited with us by over $35 billion. This this tells me our business model is working for everyday Americans, the Robinhood community. Many people say that Robinhood has helped them to pay car loans, reduce student loan debt, meet daily bills, save for the future, and we're proud to serve them. You've invited me today to discuss the events of last month, and I welcome this opportunity. In late January, many brokerage firms saw a massive increase in trading activity in a handful of stocks. Prices were moving dramatically day to day, even hour to hour. One specific day, January 28th, proved to be a completely unprecedented event. The spike in trading activity and volatility meant that Robinhood Securities, our clearing broker, had to hold the line and post additional firm capital as collateral to support our clearinghouse deposit demands. To put it in perspective, on January 28th, our daily deposit requirement was 10 times more than on January 25th. As a result, Robinhood Securities, along with many other firms, imposed temporary trading restrictions on certain securities. We began allowing limited buys of these securities the following day, and we have since lifted the restrictions entirely. There are two points I want to make clear about these temporary restrictions. First, Robinhood Securities put the restrictions in place in an effort to meet increased regulatory deposit requirements, not to help hedge funds. We don't answer to hedge funds. We serve the millions of small investors who use our platform every day to invest. 
Second, Robinhood immediately secured additional funds. Altogether, through capital raising and other measures, we've increased our liquidity by more than $3 billion to cushion ourselves against increased collateral requirements and related market stress in the future. Despite the unprecedented market conditions in January, at the end of the day, what happened is unacceptable to us. To our customers, I'm sorry and I apologize. Please know that we are doing everything we can to make sure this won't happen again. And I want to highlight one more thing. The existing two-day period to settle trades exposes investors and the industry to unnecessary risk. There is no reason why the greatest financial system in the world cannot settle trades in real time. I believe we can and should act now to deploy our intellectual capital and our engineering resources to move to real-time settlement. Together, we can solve this. Before I close, I want to sincerely thank the millions of customers who continue to use Robinhood to access the markets every day. We are grateful and committed to you. Members of the committee, I appreciate the opportunity to answer your questions. Mr. Griffith, you are now recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Chairman Waters, Ranking Member McHenry, distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to testify today on the recent market events. The U.S. capital markets are the envy of the world. Our nation's ability to allocate capital to its best and highest use creates jobs, drives innovation, and fuels our economy. America's retail investors play an important role in our capital markets. According to Gallup, about 55% of Americans own stock right now. Citadel Securities, as the largest market maker in the U.S. equities market, executes more trades on behalf of retail investors than any other firm. As I will discuss shortly, Citadel Securities played an important role in meeting the needs of retail investors during the week of January 24th. Before doing so, I want to be perfectly clear. We had no role in Robinhood's decision to limit trading in GameStop or any of the other meme stocks. I first learned of Robinhood's trading restrictions only after they were publicly announced. All of us at Sales Securities are committed to the healthy functioning of the U.S. equities markets. Now, I first participated in the financial markets as a retail investor. In the late 1980s, while attending college, I traded stocks and options for my dorm room. My passion for investing led to my founding of Citadel in 1990. Today, Citadel is one of the world's leading alternative investment managers. Our capital partners include pension plans, colleges, hospitals, foundations, and research institutions. In 2002, my partners and I founded Citadel Securities. Today, Citadel Securities is one of the world's preeminent market makers. We have been a leader in using technology to transform our markets, particularly for retail investors. Citadel Securities invests hundreds of millions of dollars each year to serve the needs of our customers. In the last week of January, the importance of this investment was on full display. During the period of frenzied retail equities trading, Citadel Securities was able to provide continuous liquidity every minute of every trading day. When others were unable or unwilling to handle the heavy volumes, Citadel Securities was there. On Wednesday, January 27th, 
we executed 7.4 billion shares on behalf of retail investors. To put this into perspective, on that day, Citadel Securities executed more shares for retail investors than the entire average daily volume of the entire U.S. equities market in 2019. The magnitude of the orders routed to Citadel Securities reflects the confidence of the retail brokerage community in our firm's ability to deliver in all market conditions and underscores the critical importance of our resilient and stable systems. I could not be more proud of our team at Citadel Securities. My colleagues who were committed to ensuring that the interest of America's retail investors were served during this extraordinary period. Once again, I appreciate the opportunity to appear today and I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Griffin. Mr. Plotkin, you are now recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Chairwoman Waters, Ranking Member McHenry, and members of the committee, I would like to thank you for this opportunity to share Melvin Capital's perspective on the recent trading activity in GameStop. I am the founder and chief investment officer of Melvin Capital. I am humbled by these unprecedented events. My investors on all sides, many investors on all sides, have experienced losses. I am here today to share my own personal experience and to be helpful in this conversation. I understand that part of the focus of this hearing is the decision of stock trading platforms to limit trading in GameStop. I want to make clear at the outset that Melvin Capital played absolutely no role in those trading platform decisions. In fact, Melvin closed out all of its positions in GameStop days before the platforms put those limitations in place. Like you, we learned about those limits from news reports. I also want to make clear at the outset that contrary to many reports, Melvin Capital was not bailed out in the midst of these events. Citadel proactively reached out to become a new investor, similar to the investments others make in our funds. It was an opportunity for Citadel to buy low and earn returns for its investors if and when our fund's value went up. To be sure, Melvin was managing through a difficult time, but we always had margin excess and we were not seeking a cash infusion. I'm here testifying today far removed from my background. I grew up in a middle-class family in Portland, Maine. I went to a public high school. I studied hard and got into a good college. Upon graduation, I did not have a job. Today, I'm married with four children, and my time is spent with my family and on Melvin Capital, which I founded six years ago. I named Melvin after my grandfather, who ran a convenience store. I wanted the firm to represent his values, integrity, hard work, taking care of customers and employees, and commitment to excellence. Melvin Capital manages a hedge fund. Investors such as academic institutions, medical research, and other charitable foundations, pension funds, retirees, and others invest with us. We have 36 employees and hundreds of investors, and I feel a personal duty to all of them. Melvin specializes in the consumer and technology sector, including companies like GameStop, AutoZone, and Expedia. Most of our investments are long. In other words, we buy stock in companies that create jobs, grow the economy, and develop new products for consumers. We do this after extensive fundamental research, sometimes literally for years. When our research convinces us that a company will grow relative to expectations, we make a long-term investment. When our research suggests a company will not live up to expectations and its stock price is overvalued, we might short a stock. Like with our long positions, our practice is to short a stock for the long-term after extensive research. 
We also short stocks because when the markets go down, we have a duty to protect our investors' capital. There are laws governing shorting stock, and of course, we always follow them. In addition, it's very important to understand that absolutely none of Melvin's short positions are part of any effort to artificially depress or manipulate down with the price of a stock. Nothing about our short position prevents a company from achieving its objectives. It is just Melvin's view about whether it will. Specific to GameStop, we had a research-supported view well before the recent events. In fact, we had been short GameStop since Melvin's inception six years earlier because we believed and still believe that its business model, selling new and used video games in physical stores, is being overtaken by digital downloads through the internet. And that trend only accelerated in 2020 when, because of the pandemic, people were downloading video games at home. As a result, the gaming industry had its best year ever, but GameStop had significant losses. In January 2021, a group on Reddit began to make posts about Melvin's specific investments. They took information contained in our SEC filings and encouraged others to trade in the opposite direction. Many of these posts were laced with anti-Semitic slurs directed at me and others. The post said things like, it's very clear we need a second Holocaust. The Jews can't keep getting away with this. Others sent similarly profane and racist text messages to me. In the frenzy during January, GameStop stock rose from $17 to a peak of $483. I do not think anyone would claim that the price had any relationship to the intrinsic value of the business. The unfortunate part of this episode is that ordinary investors who were convinced by a misleading frenzy to buy GameStop at $100, $200, or even $483 have now lost significant amounts. When this frenzy began, Melvin started closing out its position in GameStop at a loss. Not because our investment thesis had changed, but because something unprecedented was happening. We also reduced many other Melvin positions at significant losses, both long and short, that were the subject of similar posts. I'm personally humbled by what happened in January. Investors in Melvin suffered significant losses. It is now our job to earn it back. And while I do not think that anyone could have anticipated these events, I've learned much from them and I'm taking steps to protect our investors from anything like this happening in the future. I look forward to answering your questions. Thank you, Mr. Plotkin. Mr. Huffman, you are now recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Thank you. Madam Chairwoman, Mr. Ranking Member, honorable members of the committee. My name is Steve Huffman. I am the co-founder and CEO of Reddit, and I'm pleased to talk with you today about how Reddit works and what we have seen on our site in the past few weeks. Reddit's mission is to bring community and belonging to everyone in the world. What started in 2005 as a single community has since evolved into a vast network of many thousands of communities. They range from standard topics like news, sports, politics, to internet culture, to support. For example, our unemployment community has become a source of support for hundreds of thousands of Americans who have turned to Reddit after losing their jobs during the pandemic. Our communities are created and run by our users. Because of this, we describe Reddit as the most human place on the internet. Though we are small compared to the largest platforms, our communities provide an online home for millions of people every day. I'd like to share a bit about how content moderation on Reddit works. Reddit's moderation system starts with our content policy the platform-wide rules which all communities must follow. Among other, among other things, these rules prohibit hate, harassment, bullying, and illegal activity on Reddit, and they are enforced by Reddit's anti-evil team, which is composed of engineers, data scientists, and other specialists. This team also ensures the integrity of the site, 
and we have continuously honed our methods to stay ahead of bad actors to protect Reddit from manipulation, spam, and other threats. This team searched high and low for the specific comment mentioned in the previous testimony, or anything like it. The closest we could find was a single comment that received no votes and was deleted within five minutes. Such speech is not tolerated on Reddit, and we will, of course, investigate any further claims of this nature. Centralized moderation is common, but Reddit additionally uses a governance structure akin to a federal democracy, where the aforementioned policies and teams represent the federal government and the communities themselves represent states. All communities, or subreddits, are created by users that we call moderators. They set the community's rules, which may be as strict as they like, as long as they are not in conflict with the platform-wide policies, and they have a variety of tools of enforcing these rules independently. Moderators are not paid employees, but rather users who are passionate about their communities. They have the context and judgment to make decisions no algorithm could. The members of each community contribute both the content itself and the ranking of it by voting up or down on any post or comment. Unlike other platforms where submission has a built-in audience through the author's follower count, every piece of content on Reddit, no matter how famous the author, starts at zero and has to earn its visibility. Through their votes, the community itself enforces not just the explicit rules of their community, but also the unwritten rules that define their culture. This layered approach has helped our users create the most authentic communities online. The specific community we'd like to talk about today is Wall Street Bets. It's important to understand that Wall Street Bets is one of many finance and investing related communities on Reddit. This particular community specializes in higher risk, higher reward investments than what you might find in other more conservative financial communities on Reddit with such names as personal finance, investing, and financial independence. I will stress that Wall Street Bets is first and foremost a real community. The self-deprecating jokes, the memes, the crass at times language all reflect this. And if you spend any time on Wall Street Bets, you'll find a significant de depth to this community exhibited by the affection its members show one another. They are just as quick to support a, a fellow member after a big loss as they are to celebrate after a big gain. A few weeks ago, we saw the power of community in general and of this community in particular when the traders of Wall Street Bets banded together at first to seize an investment opportunity not usually accessible to retail investors, but later more broadly to defend all retail in investors against the criticism of the financial establishment. With the increase in attention, Wall Street Bets unsurprisingly faced a surge in traffic and new users. At Reddit, our first duty in these situations is to our communities, and our role in this moment was to keep Wall Street Bets online. Working around the clock, we scaled our infrastructure, made technology changes to help this community withstand the onslaught of traffic, and we acted as diplomats to help resolve conflict within Wall Street Bets leadership. We have since analyzed the activity in Wall Street, in, in Wall Street Bets to determine whether bots, foreign agents, or other bad actors played a significant role. They have not. In every metric we checked, the activity in Wall Street Bets was well within normal parameters, and its moderation tools were working as expected. We will, of course, cooperate with valid legal requests from federal and state regulators. That said, we do believe that this community was well within the bounds of our own policies. To conclude, I would like to reiterate why it is important to protect online communities like Wall Street Bets. Wall Street Bets may look sophomoric or chaotic from the outside, but the fact that we're here today means they've managed to raise important issues about fairness and opportunity in our financial system. I'm proud they use Reddit to do so. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Huffman. Mr. Gill, you are now recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. 
Thank you, Chairwoman Waters, Ranking Member McHenry, members of the committee. I'm happy to discuss with the committee my purchases of GameStop shares and my discussions of their fair value on social media. It is true that my investment in that company multiplied in value many times. For that, I feel enormously fortunate. I also believe the current price of the shares demonstrates that I've been right about the company. A few things I am not. I'm not a cat. I am not an institutional investor, nor am I a hedge fund. I do not have clients, and I do not provide personalized investment advice for fees or commissions. I'm just an individual whose investment in GameStop and posts on social media were based upon my own research and analysis. I grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts. My family was not wealthy. My father was a truck driver and my mom a registered nurse. I was one of three kids and the first in my family to earn a four-year college degree when I graduated from Stonehill College in 2009. That was not a good time to be looking for a job. From 2010 to 2017, I worked at a few startup companies, but there were significant periods when I was unemployed. I took an interest in the stock market, and even though I had very little money, I used those times to educate myself and learn more about investing. In 2019, after nearly two years unemployed, I accepted a marketing and financial education job at MassMutual. My wife, Caroline, and I were thrilled that I had an income and benefits. My job was to help develop financial education classes that advisors could present to prospective clients. I was not a stockbroker or a financial advisor. I did not talk to clients and I did not recommend stocks for them to buy. Before and after I joined MassMutual, I studied and followed stocks. One of those was GameStop. In early June of 2019, the price of GameStop stock declined below what I thought was its fair value. I invested in GameStop in 2019 and 2020 because, as I studied the company, I became more and more confident in my analysis. Two important factors, based entirely on publicly available information, gave me confidence that GameStop was undervalued. First, the market was underestimating the prospects of GameStop's legacy business and overestimating the likelihood of bankruptcy. I grew up playing video games and shopping at GameStop, and I plan to continue shopping there. GameStop stores still provide real value to consumers and reliable revenue for GameStop. Second, I believe that GameStop has the potential to reinvent itself as the ultimate destination for gamers within the rapidly growing $200 billion gaming industry. GameStop has a unique opportunity to pivot toward a technology-driven business. By embracing the digital economy, GameStop may be able to find new revenue streams that vastly exceed the value of its business. I am hardly the only person who has advocated these points. When I wrote and spoke about GameStop in social media with other individual investors, our conversations were no different from people in a bar or in a golf course or at home talking or arguing about a stock. Hedge funds and other Wall Street firms have teams of analysts working together to compile research and analyze shares of companies. Individual investors do not have those resources. Social media platforms like Reddit, YouTube, and Twitter are leveling the playing field. The idea that I use social media to promote GameStop stock to unwitting investors and influence the market is preposterous. My post did not cause the movement of billions of dollars into GameStop shares. It is tragic that some people lost money 
and my heart goes out to them. But what happened in January just demonstrates again that investing in public securities is extremely risky. As I said earlier, I consider myself and my family fortunate with our investment. When the stock price broke $20 in December, I knew my investment was a success. I was so happy to visit my family in Brockton for the holidays. The money will go such a long way for us. We had an incredibly difficult 2020. Most difficult was the tragic and unexpected loss of my sister, Sarah, in June. I am grateful to be in a position to give back to and support my family. As for what happened in January, others will have to explain it. It's alarming how little we know about the inner workings of the market. And I am thankful that this committee is examining what happened. I also want to say that I support retail investors' right to invest in what they want, when they want. I support the right of individuals to send a message based on how they invest. As for me, I like the stock. I'm as bullish as I've ever been on a potential turnaround for GameStop, and I remain invested in the company. Thank you. Cheers, everyone. Thank you, Mr. Gill. Ms. Schrupp, you are now recognized for five minutes to present your oral testimony. Chairwoman Waters, Ranking Member McHenry, and distinguished members of the Committee on Financial Services. My name is Jennifer Schulp, and I am the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. Thank you for the opportunity to take part in today's hearing. Before addressing the GameStop phenomenon specifically, I'd like to talk about the participation of retail or individual investors in our public equities markets. Retail participation has ebbed and flowed over the years, but the recent upward trend accelerated sharply during the pandemic. Most point to zero commission trading, but several other factors also likely attracted retail investors, including fractional share trading, low account minimums, and easy app-based platforms. More time at home during the pandemic probably even played a role. Retail participation in our equities markets is important. The fact that retail investors behave differently from institutional ones and differently from each other can be particularly valuable in times of market stress. In fact, individual investors may have helped stabilize the market in March 2020. Importantly, investing in the stock market also provides a path to wealth for individual investors. But stock ownership traditionally has been skewed towards the already wealthy, and it is highly correlated with race, education, and age. Retail investors making up this new surge are different. Recent research by the FINRA Investor Education Foundation and NORC at the University of Chicago found that investors who opened accounts for the first time in 2020 were younger, had lower incomes, and were more racially diverse. These new investors also held lower account balances. This may portend, as one of the researchers noted, quote, a shift towards more equitable investment participation. These new opportunities for individuals to grow their wealth should be welcomed and expanded, not restricted. Now I'll turn to GameStop. At the outset, I will note that it is difficult to analyze the impact of the trading in GameStop and other stocks because many facts are unknown. But some things seem clear. Importantly, the temporary volatility in these stocks did not present a systemic risk to market function. As the Treasury Department recognized, 
The market's, quote, core infrastructure was resilient during high volatility and heavy trading volume. This is not surprising. Despite the huge trading volume and rapid increase in value, only a small part of the market was affected, and spillover effects on the wider market were mild and short-lived. The fact that GameStop traded temporarily, and perhaps still trades above fair estimates of the company's value, is not, by itself, a reason for concern. Stock prices move in and out of alignment all the time, and markets are no strangers to bubbles. If a company is valued by the market differently than a review of its fundamentals suggests, it might indicate that the analysis is missing relevant information about a company's prospects, or it might indicate that the company's stock price is due for a correction. The market's mechanisms, including the tool of short selling, generally work well to handle these circumstances. Stepping in to prevent trading where a stock price moves contrary to conventional wisdom could deprive the market of important information. The SEC, among a host of others, is reviewing the relevant trading and conducting a study of the events. The SEC will have access to far more information than has been made publicly available, and I believe it has the tools necessary to address any harmful misconduct that may have occurred. I cannot opine on whether any regulatory changes are warranted on this incomplete record. I tend to believe the answer will be no in light of the minimal impact on the market's function. But if regulators learn more, there may be areas identified for improvement. By no means, though, should these events lead to restrictions on retail investors' access to the markets. Thank you, and I welcome any questions that you may have. Thank you, Ms. Shaw. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. I now recognize myself. Five minutes for questions. The market volatility surrounding GameStop and other securities has highlighted how many people feel that the cards are stacked against them and that market participants, like our witnesses, hide the ball. Mr. Teneve, you explained that Robinhood restricted transactions in certain securities to meet demands coming from your clearinghouse. And yet, on January 28th, you represented uh, to the media that there was no uh, liquidity problem. Isn't it true that being concerned about having enough capital uh, to meet deposit requirements, isn't that a liquidity problem? Or could you just answer yes or no? Chairwoman Waters, I appreciate the opportunity to address that. Just yes or no? We always felt comfortable with our liquidity and the additional capital that Robinhood raised. Please answer yes or no. 
we always felt comfortable. I don't have time. I just need a yes or no answer. I, I stand by my statement. The additional capital we raised wasn't to meet capital requirements or deposit so requirements. Excuse see, me. I'm reclaiming my time. This liquidity problem had real consequences for your customers, but I wonder if they were all that surprised. Between December 2019 and December 2020, Robinhood customers experienced monetary losses due to system outages. Customer accounts were reportedly compromised. The firm repeatedly failed to testify its best execution obligations, and it misled its customers regarding its revenue sources. It seems retail investors often get a bad deal at Robinhood. Mr. Tanev, also, while you testified today that, quote, Robinhood's customers benefit greatly from payment for order flow, quote unquote. In December 2020, the SEC charged Robinhood for not disclosing that it was getting uh, paid to send customer trades to Citadel Securities and other market makers and for not seeking the best terms for its customers' orders. Robinhood provided such inferior trade prices, it cost your customers over $34 million. Is your testimony after Robinhood paid? Uh, is it your testimony after Robinhood paid the SEC sixty-five million to settle those charges? That this conflict of interest is in your customers' best interest? Yes or no? Chairwoman Waters, first let me say regulatory compliance is at the center of everything that we do. We've made mistakes in the past. I'm not claiming that. Yes or no to that question. So Citadel Securities is an important counterparty. Nobody's denying that. The reason that. Gentlemen, can I answer yes or no? I'm reclaiming my time. Meanwhile, Mr. Griffin, Citadel's role in this event also raises significant questions for policymakers. Citadel Securities pays Robinhood tens of millions of dollars to process trades by Robinhood's customers. This relationship gives Citadel Enterprise key non-public information as to direction and volume of trades by retail investors. Your firm makes use of private exchanges called dark pools and other um, off-exchange trading to trade large sizes without moving the market against you. In fact, at some point last month, 50% of all trades occurred in dark pools or via OTC off exchange trades. Your business strategy is designed intentionally to undermine market transparency and scale profits from companies and other investors. One problem though, Mr. Griffin, is that we don't really know how central your firm has become to the capital markets. Mr. Griffin, does Citadel handle 47% of the US listed retail volume? Please, yes or no. Excuse me, uh, Chairman Waters, what, what percentage? I couldn't hear that number. 47%. So, Chairman Waters, to the best yes, of my knowledge, uh, so the odd, best of my knowledge, we handle in excess of roughly 40% of all retail volume. Thank you very much for reclaiming my time. Mr. Griffin, on January 27, the Citadel execute 7.4 billion shares for retail investors, which would be more trades than the average daily volume of the entire United States equities market in 2019, yes or no? Uh, Chairman Waters, that was my written and oral testimony. Thank you very much.
Uh, and with that, I now recognize the distinguished ranking member, Mr. McHenry, for five minutes for questions. All right, thank you. Uh, Mr. Tanev, I'm gonna come to you first. Uh, I, I just wanna get to what happened on that day in January. So let's take a step back here. You get a call in the middle of the night, according to what I've heard uh, you in interviews say, and based off that conversation with your compliance team, you decided to halt the buying of GameStop stock. Uh, people were furious. Um, we'll get into the regulations and the settlement parts of that uh, today. We will get to that. But there's this is what I, I think needs to be answered about your decision. Why did Robinhood restrict the buying, but not the selling of GameStop? And why did folks get locked out on the buy side only? Ranking member McHenry, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to address that. Uh, the reason that Robinhood, first of all, let me say Robinhood is always committed to providing access. It's in our name. It's in everything that we do. Uh, the decision to restrict GameStop and other securities was driven purely by deposit and collateral requirements imposed by our clearinghouses. So uh, buying, uh, oh, buying why, securities. But why? Buying securities why, increases our buying, requirements. Selling does not. Moreover, uh, preventing customers from selling is a very difficult and painful experience where customers are unable to access their money. So we don't want to impose that type of experience on our customers unless we have no other choice. And even though I recognize customers were very upset and disappointed that we had to do this, I imagine it would have been significantly worse if we prevented customers from selling. Okay, so let me ask this question. Is payment for order flow legal? Yes, payment for order flow is legal it, and regulated and, and is a common disclosed? It is this disclosed to uh, those users of your app? Yes, payment for order flow is disclosed in multiple places. And moreover, payment okay. for order flow enables commission-free trading. And that's why it's become the industry standard model as other brokerages have replicated our model and started offering commission-free trading to their customers as well. Okay, so, so to, that, to, to this greater point of what happened that day and the model that you're using, uh, let's be crystal clear. That decision you made to restrict the buying but not the selling of GameStop was based, what was it based on pressure from anyone on the witness panel here today? Not at all, zero pressure from anyone. It was a collateral depository requirement decision made by our Robinhood Securities president. All right, so let me get into this other question. Let me get in this question. You wanna democratize uh, finance. You want to open up uh, uh, Wall Street to retail investors. You say that Robinhood's mission is to democratize finance for all. So let's talk about that. So yes or no, uh, can a Robinhood customer invest in Robinhood the company? Robinhood's currently a private company, so that, that's not possible, no. Uh, and so you, you mean to tell me that the people that use your platform that make you a successful company, and I would say directly contribute to your company's exponential growth and success, they don't get the same access to equity shares 
as a Robinhood employee or your institutional investors. Is that correct? Currently, that is correct. Yes. All right. Ms. Schulp, let me pivot to you. Why is that? Why is, why is it that everyday investors on the Robinhood app, uh, people that I would argue contributed to its success, can't invest in Robinhood itself? The SEC limits a lot of investment in private companies to those folks that are known as accredited investors. And to become an accredited investor, you have to have a wealth, meet a wealth test of earning at least $200,000 a year um, or having a net worth of over a million dollars. The vast majority of people in this country don't meet that standard and are unable to invest in most private companies. Okay, so let me let me just clear this. Uh, Mr. Tenev, I don't blame you for for the restriction you put on your customers not being able to invest in equity. I'd like to have more opportunity to ask Mr. Gill his thoughts on this, but let me just say this: I don't I don't fault you for the inequitable regulatory structure that DC has created, uh, but I think we need to clear this up. Final thing, Madam Chair, I have a, 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 a for the record, I'd like to submit a letter from the DTCC, which is the clearing company. Uh, that that uh, was not on the panel today, uh, and their uh, your staff has this uh, uh, letter. All right, thank you all, and look forward to getting to the facts of the matter. Other members, Ms. Maloney, Chairwoman Waters, and Ranking Member McHenry for convening this hearing. I hope today's hearing sheds light on how our markets are working, or in many cases, are not working for smaller investors and ways we can fix that. The events of late January saw tremendous volatility and stock prices that were totally divorced from market fundamentals. The whole enterprise was viewed by some as a giant video game, trading stocks instead of properties and monopoly money. But it's not all fun and games because people can lose their life savings, their hard earned cash and tragically, Last summer, we know of at least one suicide linked to potential trading losses. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.